Hello and welcome to another episode of the Big MX Radio Podcast. I am your host, Brad Gephardt. This podcast is brought to you by Racetech. Racetech suspension and engines. You can mention Big MX Radio and you can save with Big MX Radio and Racetech. Racetech gold valves, basically a revalve in a box with better plushness, better plushness, increased bottoming bottoming resistance and better traction all that means is you're going to drop your lap times and feel more comfortable on your motorcycle and uh, with us on the line as well as on youtube live here uh we have someone who has a whole lot has a whole lot more information than i do about it uh welcome to the podcast for the very first time as a one time as a, a solo guest chris riesenberg to the big mx radio podcast welcome to the show yeah, it's awesome to be here. I'm glad that we're finally doing this. Um, we've obviously done a lot together and talked a lot, but we really haven't done a deep dive back through um, everything that I'm all about and why I'm uh, why I'm here today. Absolutely, we we look to sort of dig right into uh, uh, the nuts and bolts of what sort of has made you so successful on the uh, throughout the industry. Honestly, on on a ton of different levels, uh, from an analytical standpoint, uh, marketing standpoint, as well as uh, building up some pretty cool brands and working with some really neat uh, companies. So let's start off with uh, some background story. Where does the, where does uh, the sort of cross-section between motocross and Chris Riesenberg first collide uh, and then uh, kind of go off in the same direction after that? Well, I think like most people, um, I was born into it. My my family raced, my dad raced growing up. He was, um, unfortunately, had a couple wheels too many. Thankfully, I didn't follow him down that uh, path of four wheels. And um, on my sixth birthday, woke up to a, a nice shiny PW50 and, and the venture started there. And I mean, honestly, growing up, I still, as far back as I can remember, I went to sleep every single night watching dirt bikes on my TV. I had VHS recordings of all the races and then all the moto movies, and you just fall asleep watching them. And I mean, I was, I've been a super fan my entire life. So to transition into something in the industry at some point was, was kind of always a goal. Um, I raced all the way up into the pro ranks. I did one pro national that went terribly, um, raced a lot of local pro stuff, did a couple of years of arena cross, but ultimately decided I wasn't going to make a living riding my dirt bike. So it was transition into the real life and real world. Um, and also, you know, just being a fan of everything transitioned to playing all the moto video games growing up, you know, we traveled a ton and in the motorhome, just grinding out laps with my buddies and stuff. And uh, really fell in love with that side of it as well and I mean that took me all the way to I guess my third year of college um, it was time for semester I was going to college to be an elementary teacher and um, I had at that point I was racing on the weekends there was a little money race that ran every Friday night and I would go race up there to basically make money to spend on the week at college uh, but I wasn't practicing or putting any effort in um, like I said that dream had sailed and I was over college. I didn't want to be a teacher anymore. I didn't like school. So I didn't know how I was going to go to school every day. And um, I saw a job opportunity for Rainbow Studios to go as a track designer uh, for the MX versus ATV games, which I was already playing. Um, there was a PC version of MX versus ATV Unleashed that um, I built quite a few tracks for online and such. And I was like, well, that's a job that I would like, you know, that'd be fun. So I sent them an email asking, you know, what do you have to 
go to college for? You know, how do you get into this industry? And the next day I got a phone call and it was a phone interview and I didn't even know it was a phone interview. A couple of days later, I was flying out to Phoenix for an in-person interview and offered the job on the spot. They had seen the work that I'd done previously. Um, I guess my attitude didn't suck and they gave me an opportunity. So that was kind of what launched me actually into the industry on a on a business side versus um, obviously just a rider and a fan. And I mean, it was a dream job at, you know, 19 or 21 years old. Spending some time right in the trenches during sort of like the infancy of online gaming uh, and video, like I would say video games in general go all the way back to the early, early 80s. But as far as like good motocross games, uh, I'm thinking of like Motocross Madness, Motocross Madness 2, uh, those Rainbow Studios titles that were were pretty iconic right in through the the earliest portion of uh, like motocross video gaming. Um what made you want to like feel like you could actually like kind of make some some tracks and stuff like that like i i i was too young to like sort of be on the internet and and doing that at the time like i think um maybe 4 or 5 years younger than you maybe a few more but either way um like what was that landscape like and, and how able, how how quickly were you able to sort of uh get a knack for it and uh and flex some creativity well i mean it goes back to the the earliest days of playing in a sandbox basically i mean i spent day after day in a dirt pile just building building tracks and jumps and such um for toy dirt bikes and it transitioned into games and i think it's a subject of of me having a little bit of add um when it comes to that side of things like i would play the games and once i've ridden all the tracks and found out all the rhythms i wanted to create something instead of playing the same track over and over i would i was more into the creating than than grinding laps and lap times so um i'd played a little bit of motocross madness but i never had a computer good enough to run it but then i finally got my parents to get me a nice enough computer and we ran motocross madness too and uh i found the online community there pretty awesome like just the racing side as well as downloading tracks and that side of things and i just i figured out i had to learn so i jumped in and started learning photoshop and learning how to make tracks and i just self-taught asked questions and and kind of just grinded my way through it because it was something I wanted to learn. So there was nothing going to stop me from doing it. Like I was going to figure it out. Um, and then, so it started there. And then, I mean, that was, I mean, I was probably 12 years old, something like that. And I started to get decent at it. And I think a lot of it was um, my racing background helped considerably as far as I wanted to capture the feel of riding a real dirt bike. And I've ridden so many different tracks and stuff. And, um, even when I look at a track maps now, I kind of analyze things maybe a little bit differently than than a lot of other people just from having conversations. So, um, yeah, I wanted to create an experience that feels like actually riding the track versus um, a lot. There's other people out there that do a really good job of like they'll do a one to one replica scaled version of a track, but it doesn't really necessarily capture that feeling of riding Supercross, for instance. And that wasn't what I wanted. Like, I wanted the feeling of the pop and the off the jumps and that sort of things and I seem to have a knack for creating that and creating a fun flow and and obviously people liked it so i was able to land uh land a really cool opportunity 
your success story within the industry as well as just that avenue is so similar to so many other success stories that I've heard, whether it be within the sport of motocross or elsewhere in the world. It's it's that initial interest, the passion to want to learn, and the willingness to put in the time, regardless of sort of how much time it takes the you to actually acquire the skills necessary for you to get where you want to be. Like um it, it really sounds to me like you this was something that um if if it took 10 hours a day uh it would never feel like work and um honestly if you can do something that truly makes you happy which obviously this was something that clearly did at the time in your life um that's such a powerful thing and like when i think when when people like yourself are put in that sort of position uh the sky's the limit as far as what they can achieve and uh it must have been a pretty cool experience too like you said like just like you just wanted to know some information about uh, this possible, the possibility of working for Rainbow Studios. They call you up the very next day for an interview. Uh, I'm curious how that interview went and then uh, sort of how you got your feet wet and uh, really acclimated yourself to that role. Yeah, it was it was really actually sweet. I was on my way. Again, I was a really big fan. So I was on my way to the Rockford Arena Cross um, with actually... Um, I was at my now boss's shop when I got my phone interview. Um, we were hanging out and he was doing the suspension and engines for the arena cross team that I was traveling with um, to the race where a couple of my buddies rode for. When I got the phone call, that turned into being the phone interview. Um, and then conveniently enough, they wanted to interview me the Friday before the Phoenix Supercross, which as soon as I saw that, they were booking my flights. I was like, can you uh, book my flight to come back on Monday? Because I want to stay for the race. <laughs> um, so, we, yeah, I flew out. And, I mean, like I said, just seeing the place. And I got to play. It was They were in the middle of making MX versus ATV Untamed. So I actually got to play the title ahead of time, which that by itself was worth the trip to me. Because, again, I was just a huge fan who happened to be having this opportunity. Um to do something I probably would have done for free. Like, I didn't, I didn't care. They were talking about salary and stuff. I mean, at the time I was part-time working as a cashier at the grocery store and racing on Friday night to make a couple hundred dollars, you know, like it didn't matter what they were going to pay me. It was going to be more than, more than that. And like, it was in downtown in a super nice office building and district. I was like, man, it was everything about it was super cool. And then um, the track design group all pretty much had come the same way that I did. They all started by building their own stuff and then got hired on to the team. So they had a similar background and a similar passion. And we ended up all going to the race together on that Saturday. And um, I don't remember even the interview being much more than just hanging out and getting to make sure my personality fit. I think they, they already knew the skill set was going to be okay. And honestly, um, I know that that Mike there who he's the one that builds the track map still for the super cross bike broadcasts that you see the 3d animated ones and stuff. Um, he was already there and Moto dude. And we became very, very good friends. And I know his attitude was, I don't really care what you know, as far as the track design part, cause I can teach you. It really was as long as your personality is good and a fit with the team. And I guess it fit because they, they brought me on and, I mean, and then it was, how soon can you start? I think it was like two weeks later, I was packing my life up and moving to Arizona. And I mean, I, I started, I remember I drove out on um, the day after Valentine's Day. And like I said, my interview was Phoenix Supercross. And all this started 
over, like I said, I dropped out of college or decided I wasn't going to go back to college at semester break. So all of this happened in, you know, a month and a half of uh, completely transforming and changing my life and dropping everything. I mean, I had to find a place to live out there and, and drive across country. And I mean, I didn't know what I was getting into. I was still young, but it was one of the coolest experiences. I would never change that for the world because it really, it made me grow up at a younger age too. Well, certainly. And I really vibe with that as far as your experience in the interview, because I think all too often um, people get so nervous about going into an interview. But what it really is, is a manager trying to find out, can I work with this person? Is this person that it can be, um, can they be led? Can they be a leader? Uh, and trying to just get that that uh, initial vibe and then sort of like, that's why they say like, like first impressions are so important is because like you only have a small sh- snapshot of opportunity to sort of uh, find out whether this person like, yeah, you can look at someone's resume, uh, but talk to someone for 10, 15 minutes to find out whether or not that resume uh, is completely full of shit or not. Um, clearly, you were able to gel with people and uh, and clearly you're able to sort of just like, acclimate yourself in there immediately. Um, like, did you have a lot of input on Untamed as a as a title or w- was that basically finished by the time you already got there? Yeah, Untamed was... Um... I would say 50% of the way through development. So I didn't really get to create much. I came in and there was a lot of like, we, I placed hay bales around the tracks that were already built um, and to AI to, to race and learning all of those tools and team. Uh, There wasn't, yeah, there there wasn't a lot of opportunity left to make tweaks or changes on that title, but it it was more of the, the busy work side of things, but it was okay because it allowed me to learn the team and the tool set and, all of that side of things. And then also I was just like tied down to um, learning all of the processes and stuff, but also that built up ambition of, I want cut loose to actually design my first game track. So I had this, um, it's like when a rider has an injury and they come back and they're just so excited to ride because they've, they've had something almost taken away from them. Uh, So it was just, yeah, it was a, a bunch of built up excitement and ideas and, and creativity and i mean one of the coolest things about our offices where they gave us pretty much whatever we wanted for us to be creative and do our jobs but all of our track designers we all had a tv and dvd player sitting at our desks and we ran moto movies constantly through those things and we'd always use it for inspiration and ideas and we we're all just feeding off of each other so you also have all these built-up ideas of well i've been watching all these cool things and putting them in my head and kind of backstoring them until it was time to finally let them loose when we got into um, MX versus ATV Reflex. Well, there you go. And that to this day is still one of my favorite titles. It is my favorite title. I'm not even say it's one of. It is my favorite title. Um, it's the only game that I think I would put, I would still put in on a regular basis and play. I haven't played video games regularly in quite some time. Uh, but for me, it's 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 that game. It, it's just like the time in my life when I was sort of late teens, early 20s, uh, and able to still uh, kind of play guilt-free, I suppose. I don't know why uh, there's a maybe a stigma around where playing video games uh, later on in life. Maybe there shouldn't be. But either way, a uh, couple questions I had to, uh, for you about uh, the crew of characters you worked with. Like, who are the, some of the people that were really stuck out to you as people uh, that were sort of part of that crew? Um, like, was I obviously one of the, the things that was talked about early in the middle of the 2000s was uh, Ernesto, uh, no, uh, 
Stefan Rancada. Stefan Stefan Rancada, uh, known for for doing a lot of uh, des, like track design work and stuff like that. Um, I, I assume the people that you worked with was a steady mix of people who were actual like active riders, um, and you must have enjoyed uh, being able to do do a little bit of riding down in AZ, um, but also some people who uh, like they work for the they work for the brand, but then they themselves they don't ride. Uh, was is that the case? Um, it was really a, an interesting time at the company because the original people that that worked on the MX versus ATV games and like MX Unleashed and ATV Off-Road Fury and stuff, which included Stefan, like a big group of them had left and started another studio just a couple blocks away um, called 2XL Studios. And they were making like the Baja games and they were doing some mobile stuff okay. and whatnot. And there was a lot of crossover because obviously they had worked with a lot of people that were still at rainbow studios in the past. So, um, I mean, we'd see them at like happy hours and dinners and stuff. We'd get together after work. Um, and it was a, at least on my side, it was always super friendly and, you know, we didn't talk about work a ton. It was just, we still shared a lot of the same passion of a lot of guys that were into like off-roading and that side of things. Um, but yeah, I didn't get to work with Stefan, but I was basically part into his position. Um, but the group of people at the studio, it was always a little bit of a struggle because there was those of us that ride and are super big fans of the sport. And then there's the other guys that they're just programmers and they just know how to make video games and they just want to make cool technology. And the fact is, is it probably takes both, um, you know, and they would pull really hard on the the casual side of things and the arcade side of things. And then, of course, we'd pull on the no, it needs to be core. We want to build basically a replica simulation type game that's accessible um so there was definitely those battles uh within and trying to get things accomplished it uh, it actually was probably one of the things that was the most frustrating for me was i don't think we truly did either one of them well because of that struggle if it was you get your way in this spot and i get my way in that spot and then we never really get to the absolute best result Fair enough. And I think that's why for me, uh, Reflex was maybe that perfect cross section. Like it had um, some, some in, like, there, like the, the physics of the game I, to me was very realistic. Uh, it didn't seem very arcade-ish. Um, it, it was like the gameplay my, for myself, like it looked good. Uh, the, the tracks would break down. Um, whereas like when, you know, I, I watched like uh, simulation by uh, like MX simulator and MX bikes and stuff like that. And I, now I like the, the, the games today, um, the, the tracks look so sterile. Like they're like completely like just almost like in place and they don't change and there's no lines in them. Um, and like the, honestly, for me, like the gameplay actually looks worse than it did 10, 20 a year, 20 years ago, uh, which kind of has me scratching my head, but, um, yeah, like I think you guys really captured uh, lightning in a bottle there, uh, with, with reflex and then, uh, yeah, a live wasn't a bad game either, but, uh, yeah, both are pretty solid. Well, the, the crazy thing about the reflex game is it was a brand new set of physics that was built from the ground up and the physics for it were, I mean, it takes a long time to develop that. It started as a simulation and then they added basically helpers to, to dial it back. But when it came to the building of the game process, the first kind of thing that had to be done on the art side was the tracks had to be built because you can't lay down dirt textures and build environments or anything without the terrain there first. But yet, 
the terrain is super dependent on the physics of the bike. You know, it's not like you could just build a track and then expect the bike to work for it. You actually have to have the bike to test it. And we did a lot of testing. Um, so the funny thing is the tracks in um, Reflex were actually built. I sat down with our physics programmer, the guy that tuned it, not the one that was actually doing the physical programming, but the tuning and played with his tuning tool and developed a set of physics that was actually a hacked version of the untamed physics. Um, and I did that and I didn't know what the heck I was doing. I just was looking for a feel. And I just stayed in late at work one night. And like I stayed and played video games because it was fun. Like <laughs> uh, It wasn't a job to me. And so I created these physics and I just was like, hey, you guys should check this out. And we ended up building all our tracks with that set of physics. And then another thing I tell people is we had this, uh, the very first version of terrain deformation that I've ever seen in a moto video game um, that our programmers had put together. Again, it was using those physics with in one of the untamed tracks and they're like, hey, check this out. And it was it was insane. Like, it was so cool. It, to this day, it was the best train deformation I've ever seen in a game. Um, it would change gameplay and everything else. And unfortunately, like, when we went over to into Reflex and actually had the final version of it and not the prototype version, I don't think anything's ever been as good as that prototype was that is it's lost forever and it's like i keep telling people like, it was so sick you'd be you'd be in a corner and you had to start cutting down out of the burn because the jump out of the corner was so rutted you couldn't get the three in anymore and so it would change the gameplay a ton or the whoops would start to get flattened out and you either want to move into the line or out of the line based on if you wanted to jump through them or be flat like it was a real gameplay changer um, which is something i've always wanted from a deformation system and i've, I've yet to get there uh those those of you that are listening, if you spent much time with MX Simulator, when they, their deformation stuff really started to come online, um, I spent hours upon hours upon hours working on trying to develop that system to accomplish what I wanted. And I mean, ultimately, that's what drove me to not really play video games anymore. It was frustration of trying to get that system to work and it wouldn't work. And <laughs> I couldn't get enough support from the rest of the community and the people to to help because it takes more than one person, unfortunately, to, to do something like that. You know, I can drive ideas and, you know, facilitate stuff to an extent, but I'm not a programmer. Fair enough. So uh, what were some of the, what was the first track uh, or maybe the track that you had the, like the layout that you had the most amount of input on, uh that then also you sort of look back and like i am most proud of this layout because it plays well it was popular um or and and what are were also some some hidden gems about those games well the one thing that was really nice was with reflex i was so dang excited um that i was i was working non-stop so i got to create a lot because and other people would fall behind schedule a little bit and I'd be like, well, I'll just build that. I'll just take that track on, <laughs> you know, I'll build that one. Um, it was a weird process though, too, for me, because when, when I would build a track previously, I would just open Photoshop and just start building. And I would create the layout and everything as I went, just based on what flowed. Like I wouldn't know whether you were turning left or right after a section until I built it a lot of times. And in our process, because they had to develop environments and concepts and all this side of things. And, you know, we wanted them all to be unique and different. We blueprinted everything beforehand. And so that was the first time I actually had to create a, basically a track design without ever playing it, uh, which was 
probably the hardest thing for me. And honestly, if you look back at the blueprints versus what actually became on my tracks, I changed them a ton. And uh, luckily, I, I was able to get enough freedom with that, with our art team and just working with them. Um, but yeah, I mean, things are because I wanted them to flow and be good. I don't remember which one I actually built first. Um, I do remember like the to build an easy track was really hard for me um, for the game because I always like different rhythms and that side of things. And we always wanted to give like the the intro players like a couple easy tracks to start with. And that was probably the, what I was worst at because I didn't want to just, I didn't want a basic like stadium track that you don't really have rhythm options in. You know, I was always completely different rhythms and multiple options. Um, but the, I really liked, um, it ended up being Stone Point 2, I believe. It was kind of a little tighter, smaller track that I really liked in Reflex. Um, the Kingston 2 track was cool because I basically just threw everything at it that I could um, with going out of the stadium and um, the Jeremy McGrath Invitational inspired freestyle ramp jumps that I know a lot of people still hate and say they're not core. And I'm like, I'm more core than most of you guys. Um, it's a video game <laughs> and they're supposed to be cool. But that was really neat because it was just tons of rhythm and rhythm and rhythm um i was pretty excited because although i didn't build it i was a big part of testing the fort dodge 2 stuff and coming up with ideas for that one that goes jumping up into the stands and whatnot uh that's still my favorite layout by far i if i pop that into my xbox right now i can still play it yeah and it's a great looking track too it just all of that was cool so um, a lot of times what we would do we had really sweet tools that you'd be sitting there and you're playing and there was, you just hit a live update button straight from Photoshop into the game. And like, you'd be going, you could take a triple as you're going off of it and just take the landing away from someone or move it 10 feet. So in case they crash, but so you could have a lot of fun with that. But the reason that those tools were sweet was you could, I could sit at my desk and be building a track while I have somebody else sitting there playing it. And I'm just watching it and tweaking to make it ride the way that I want just from watching it. Um, so we did a lot of that just within our track design group as a whole of tweaking how it rides and like that whole up in the stand section um i was the one on the controller not the one in the in photoshop actually building it to create that but it was cool and it was ideas like that that you know they're they're based in reality like you went up in the stands and stuff in races and we just made it a little bit more extreme but yet tried to keep it based in realism and i feel like that's the stuff that reflex did really well is it still pushed the limits of what's real and what's not um but yet it was a game and then on the outdoor side all of the tracks were somewhat based off of real tracks or a hybrid of real tracks so like for instance uh moto 448 and razorback were based off of an environment at um of called the 500 at in stillwater oklahoma where it's just right down the road from where cooperland was it's a public riding area and it just took concepts and, and terrain from inspired by that and then built a custom track out of it and um and then uh, the desert tracks were really fun those are probably some of my favorite to play um i thought that they raced really well i don't remember what they were called at this point it's been a while but they were the dusty dry ones and i also thought that was one of the first times i've seen like blue groove captured in a video game like just visually um i think that those were super unique and new and interesting uh, how about a, a layout that obviously no one here is that, that's listening to this is ever going to get to play it, but uh, do you recall any any tracks or layouts that basically got left on the cutting room floor? 
Um, there was a whole group of tracks that were built for, so to fast forward a little bit, um, okay. to post uh, to a live coming out, and I'm just verifying that I have all of this straight. It's been a while, but um, so during the production of a live, we got told that there was going to be this this big shift, and we were going to go to the digital title, and it was going to be heavily DLC based and such. And the the corporate side of THQ came to us and said, "Yeah, we're going to pull Supercross out of the game and sell it separately." And I mean, me, I'm I'm still a fan of the titles. Like when I'm working there. I'm very passionate about it because I want to play the game and I about lost my mind. I can't believe I didn't lose my job with. So the way I was in some of the meetings and such is very upset, (laughs) but what ended up kind of being the, the promise to us was, Hey, you're going to build this arcade style game for a live and it's going to have nationals only, but then we're going to follow it up with a more simulation style core hardcore game that's supercross only and it's going to drop with supercross season and that's what got us to shut up because we all wanted that game and so we'd do anything we could we would do anything to make that game because that's the one we wanted like that hardcore type type game that was more realistic so we had i think we had 16 or 17 tracks built for that game um when i ultimately put in my resignation and then um, a week after I left, after I left, they shut the company down and those tracks are gone. I mean, and they were, they're very much the same scale as like the James Stewart compound supercross tracks and some of the DLC tracks that were released for a live kind of ahead of time, or maybe it was after it came back. I don't remember. There was a couple of them released, but there was, like I said, there was a huge batch of those tracks and they'll never see the light of day, which is, is pretty crazy. And, it's just insane how some of that stuff works. Like when putting a game out, the number of tracks is always important to me because again, I'm a track guy. Like I don't care about gear or any of the other stuff or game modes. I want tracks. Like just give me more to play. And so I remember we were building a live, the people were behind again. And so what the when they're behind, they start cutting content because they don't they don't change the deadline, they change the amount of content. And there was already a very few tracks on there and the snow environment tracks that ended up in that game. They were going to cut that whole thing. And at the time I'd moved on from being a track designer to a game designer. And again, I threw a fit. Like I, we can't put a game out. It was going to be like six tracks total in the game or something. Like it was terrible. Um, brutal. And I said, what if I, what if I was like, I'll come in this weekend and I'll build the whole environment in this weekend. If I have it for you on Monday, will you not cut it? And they agreed. So I literally basically lived at the office the whole weekend and they're not my favorite tracks I've ever built. In fact, I think they're, they're pretty terrible, but I'd rather them be in the game than not be in the game um, and and not have them. So um, that was just an interesting story of the way that they are is they're like, I'll just cut it. We don't care. For me, it was like, no, you can't like, this is the end product cannot afford to have you cut those tracks out. Fair enough. You know, I I think uh, there's uh, I'm sure there's more than a few people listening that would thank you for that. And uh, that was one of the questions that I had about Alive was why there was, I believe, out of nine outdoor tracks, there was three uh, winter slash snow themed tracks, which uh, up here in Canada, I can relate to because I've actually raced, raced in the snow twice uh, on a dirt bike, not on a, a snowmobile or a uh, um 
uh, a timber sled bike but uh yeah like what was the deal with that and the rationale behind uh basically uh i almost had the shades of uh golden eyes uh um siberia uh rounds yeah i mean i had no say in the environment side of things on it um it was that's what our that's you know that's a little bit where the the hardcore side of us we got to build the track that we wanted to build on the track but the the non-core moto people got to kind of decide whatever that they could make it look like whatever the heck they wanted we didn't really care because we wanted the gameplay experience Mm -hmm. and that was a little bit of the the compromise for it i guess was that they can you can do whatever you want off the track but just let us have the gameplay that we want on the track um but i mean i think it could have been executed obviously much better with with a little bit more time but at least ultimately it it stayed in the game and it was a weird time for me um, at, at Rainbow Studios with, with Alive was I had transitioned after Reflex into a game design position instead of a track design position. And the reason being was we had a bunch of great track designers there that could do fantastic work. But I felt like in order for me to make a better product and steer the product better, I needed to move in where I could have a bigger kind of impact on the title. So I moved over into a game design, game design position. So I wasn't even a track designer and jumped back into building tracks for that. Um, And it was similar to what happened with the James Stewart compound was also during reflex. I don't know if you remember, we used to have five pro riders in, in a game. Like that was, that was all that we had and like back into untamed and whatnot. Um, But with my connections from just racing in the past and being around the industry and that side of things, like I already knew a lot of the privateer guys and such. And I knew that they all would love to be in the game. And so I started there of let it got them to let me get permission of do give me some release forms. Let me go to Anaheim and Phoenix Supercrosses. And I just walked around the pits and hung out on Privateer Island, getting every single person that I could in the game. And they were all stoked on it, which later on obviously we transitioned to now I know every single privateer in the pits. And <laughs> Privateer Proven, baby. Privateer Proven's going to be born, you know, uh, foreshadowing that a little bit. But um, but also so we started working with the industry companies because we had companies like Fly Racing and, you know, Fox or Troy Lee or, you know, your hard parts companies and that side of things that, of course, like FMF wants to be in the game and we want them in there because it adds authentic- authenticity. But all we were doing was you send us product, we'll put you in the game. And I took that a step further as well and started doing cross promo relationships and um, you know, we'll give you a little bit more exposure in the game, but you're going to promote us, you know, and give us some marketing and that side of things. So I started dabbling into the marketing side and also getting to know people on the, the industry side of, of things. So, um, as I transitioned into game design, well, we, we looked at the industry as a whole and, and who are the big fish that can reach both gamers as well as the moto industry more than anyone. And it's your energy drink companies. So, um, I put proposals together for um, both Red Bull and Monster and Rockstar, who didn't really have any interest in doing anything, um, and convinced them to fly myself and um, one of our other guys out. And we actually visited Red Bull and Monster back-to-back in the same day with very similar proposals. Um, They were personalized a bit. Um, Monster didn't bite, and Red Bull was all in. And... I mean, I gave them a kind of an a la carte list of here's some ideas of what we can do. And they bid on the James Stewart compound idea. And 
to this day oh, the fact the that hours I, I had, spent on that compound <laughs> the fact that i had no marketing experience i'm walking into red bull of all places and just like sitting in this meeting room and, and pitching them something like out of the blue and the fact that they bid on it and we're not only bid on it, they were super excited about it and we put this whole program together and we got it all done and then our then we told our corporate marketing department about it and they were like i don't know if they were blown away or embarrassed that we were able to do it with zero budget because we didn't have a budget they had all the money to spend anything i did i had to do for free and I mean, we delivered them james stewart and red bull on a silver platter um they were working on some end cap like placements and stuff with red bull and the title that they were paying for like all of this stuff and then of course the marketing department on the corporate side sinks their teeth into it and about killed the deal and i was heartbroken through it i'm like what are you guys doing like this thing's perfect and and honestly for a minute red bull really wasn't all that stoked just because now they had this corporation trying to basically take advantage of them and, and use them up versus you know when we did it it was a win-win for everybody but there was just another i mean i have i couldn't work in corporate america again like it it was a time where i was doing the coolest project ever it was like a dream i'm building the Stewart compound and bringing james into the game and you know he's flying in and i'm directing videos you know all those little video mini clips um which is just unbelievable. I never pictured myself being part of that. But at the same point, on the on the business side of things, I'm struggling internally. Um, it was a it was really challenging, and it actually got to the point too. Again, uh, track designers being behind, <laughs> not being able to deliver stuff. The Stewart compound was going to be. I think they were switching the track designer that was going to build it, and it was was not my favorite one. And I was like, this thing has to be perfect. Like if we're going to do it, it needs to be done right. And then they told me, oh, uh, corporate cut the the travel budget to go to the Stewart compound. And yeah, we don't have room for you to go. We're going to send our lead game designer instead. And I'm like, this has been my baby and my project for months on end. And you're not clipping me from it. And so I said, well, how about this? Why don't, you let me be the track designer on the project. You know, I know how to make tracks. I care about this project more than anyone. It's my baby. And luckily they, they bid on that. It actually took my buddy, Dave, who was the one that flew to Red Bull monster with me, um, threatening that. And he was our licensing manager as well. And he threatened that he's like, I'm not going if you clip him. Like he was, he basically put his ass on the line for me to be part of it. Wow. And that's big. Um, I mean, Dave and I, we kicked a lot of ass together. Like he was handled, all of the licensing and that side of things for me. So all the cross promo deals I had, he handled the legal side of all of them. And man, we walked into companies all the time and and we just worked together well. And we both had a very similar vision of, well, we just want to be good people and we wanted to create something good for everybody. You know, it wasn't like we were going in there asking them for something and we weren't willing to deliver for them on the on the other side. So um, yeah, we, I finally got to fly, to fly to Florida and go to James's compound and... He took us around in a, in a mule around the whole property and around the track and kind of explained, you know, all of the nuances of the outdoor track and stuff. He wasn't riding at the time. That was, he was dealing with injury stuff. Um, Malcolm was there riding Supercross. Actually, one of his first days on Supercross was then, oh, that was that long ago. Holy crap. But I guess I'm getting old. 
Hey guys, just a little bit of technical difficulties right here. Uh, my laptop uh, is connected to the power 99% of the time, uh, probably more than that actually, and uh, somehow got disconnected. I didn't get a warning that uh, my Zoom meeting was about to get cut incredibly short with checkers and uh, out of nowhere, my laptop just shut itself off and uh, nothing I could do. I just split this thing up into two different videos and uh, two different parts of the podcast. But uh, thanks to the magic of post-production editing, uh, here is the rest of my podcast with Checkers. Whoa, sorry about that there. Little technical difficulties. Sorry about that, Chris. You were just talking about the Stuart compound. My laptop decided to go on the fritz, but we're still here with you now. Let's talk a little bit about that Stuart compound. I myself uh, played way too much uh, hours on that particular layout. It was the outdoor track, the supercross track, which was actually, I have a bone to pick with you because that was a very difficult supercross layout, if if I do say so myself. But I do thank you for allowing uh, there to be an option off of one of the berms so you could jump off of the one berm and actually land on top of what I guess would be uh, James Stewart's uh, garage. I, I spent some time up there as well. Funny enough, um, actually, I spent some time on that rooftop too, and I'm, I'm not really a big heights guy, um, but at the end of the day, actually, we we went up on top of the roof and we're just hanging out talking, which is was pretty cool. You can climb up there from the from the railing, and really, that's yeah, and that's where the idea came from. Of well, we need to be able to jump up here and ride up here because, again, I'm a I'm a video game person myself. Like, I I like to do weird stuff like that, you know, like. I want the realist gameplay experience, but at the same point, if you give me a roller coaster or a ski ramp or something like that, I want to be able to try to ride on it, um, which is actually really difficult in the way that our tracks were built because they were um, a displacement map, which is just a black and white image. And so the, the train, like riding on physics and stuff were way different than riding on objects, which, you know, were created obviously 3d objects and stuff. So um they were a bit of a challenge, but yeah, back to the Stuart compound. We finally get on an airplane, get down there and, you know, James greets us. And I was a little nervous going in because I mean, I'm a fan for one. Um, and he's James freaking Stewart. And two, I didn't know, you know, how much he was into it, you know, what it was going to be like working with him. And he was awesome immediately. He was just another moto dude. And that was, it was super cool. As soon as we started going around the track and like talking about, you know, he was talking about how he would, you know, triple the bumps into the corners and stuff like that around his practice track. I mean, we could talk moto lingo immediately. I think we both felt comfortable. Um, and it was really neat, a really neat experience. Unfortunately, I didn't get to watch him ride the track. He was battling injury. And I believe that was right when he was about to uh, switch teams, I think uh, maybe going over to Yamaha or I can't recall exactly the the time and time and place but I know that there okay. was kind of I think that might have been factory Yamaha to L&M uh, or L&M to JGR L&M to JGR maybe I I think but I'm not I'm not quite certain on that I don't I don't recall I just remember he wasn't riding um but then we did get to watch Malcolm ride a little bit and it was actually before his Supercross debut so it was from his early laps on on Supercross but I didn't get to see any of the the James lines. And then it was pretty neat at the end of the day. And it's one the only thing I kept when I left Rainbow Studios is actually I went and sat on the big tabletop in the middle and 
hand drew blueprints for the supercross tracks and outdoor track and um maybe when this goes live i will onto um the podcast network so i'll actually post those on my social media and people can go look at them because i'm super proud of them and they're really cool and they're just they're handwritten scribbles but it was neat sitting in the dirt at stewart's place and i was just reflecting on the day that was of, of it we also were filmed the whole time um he was doing bubba's world at the time and part of what we had arranged with our deal was that we were going to be featured in an episode of Bubba's world to promote the game. And unfortunately that was one of the things that corporate, when they decided to upset Red Bull got clipped. So um, it never came out and saw the light of day, but yeah, I mean, that project was really cool. So the, that was kind of phase one. And then phase two, I went back to Phoenix and obviously had to build, build the tracks and make them 3d. And then it was time for James to fly out and he flew out for two reasons. One was to play his compound and basically give it a stamp of approval and make any changes he wanted. And then also to do the, the cut scenes that, that were recorded with the title. So um, phase two comes and James comes and he's sitting at my desk playing this track and ultimately found out he's not very good at the game. So it ended up being him watching someone else play the track uh, so that he could give feedback on it, but he was really pumped on it. He's like, wow, he didn't believe that we could make it as realistic as we did. But then he goes, there's only one problem. And I'm like, okay. And the Supercross track by the barn was the one that they, where they were riding. I think it's the red one with the lights on it. And he's like, well, you're just going through here, tripling through this rhythm section. He's like, but I quad this and I quad that. And I quad that. And he's like, you can't do that. And I wanted to pick up my monitor and throw it out the freaking window because I'd literally spent weeks making those jumps so you couldn't quad them because i wanted it to ride like a real supercross track again and <laughs> so i'm working super hard to make it so you can't quad them and and to do it without like it's not easy because you have to just change the faces just every so slightly to make it so that they're not possible for him then he's sitting there telling me i could have avoided all that work because he was quadding them anyways and to change it all back um so that was pretty funny just because I mean, I'm looking at it as a normal person looks at a supercross track and like, no, they're going to go three, three, three through the rhythm. And for a normal person, that's what they would do. But this is James F. and Stewart, and he's a freaking quad god. So uh, that was pretty neat. And then we went into the cutscenes, which was actually, it was a really different situation seeing, seeing James there. He was really uncomfortable on camera, just speaking into it and with lines and stuff. And so that was actually a good bit of a struggle. And um, if I could do it all over again, I probably would do things differently to not even put him in that situation and, and figure out a different way to, to execute what we did. Um, oh, and then the other really cool thing about it when we were at his place was he goes, what's it take to get on the cover of this thing? And I was like, you want to be on the cover of the game? He's like, yeah, wouldn't that be sick? He's like, all the, he wanted to be bigger than motocross was part of the reason he was super excited about it. And he's like, of course. all the celebrities, like the big, big people there, they're on video game covers. And Tiger, so that, was, that yeah, was another one. Madden. When we, we call back to the marketing department, of course, they're all for it. They're like, heck yeah, we'll put him on the cover. Like, we didn't put you on the cover because we figured we'd have to pay an arm and a leg for you to be on the cover. And you're asking to it? Heck yeah. So that was pretty neat that you know, he was actually really stoked because we were willing to do that for him and we were stoked too. So that was, that was pretty cool. Certainly. And yeah, no, it was, that was such an iconic, 
uh, time in the sport. It's uh, the sort of just after the sort of economic downturn, but uh, I think it was still for the most part, good times uh, all around as far as uh, abundance within the industry and, and stuff like that. And, and to have a character like James, who like the fact that you were on hand for some of those, like kind of those standups where he was like, that was pretty, that was pretty cool. Just wait for you. What we have for you next. And like, like, Honestly, it didn't even sound that rehearsed or that like that scripted. Like he 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 did a pretty good job, uh, like um, like kind of being a little bit more off the cuff. I'm surprised to hear that he was uh, nervous about it, but it was a little bit out of his comfort zone, I assume. Um, but that's cool, man. I like uh, that. That was a really cool game. Uh, I feel like that. Like honestly, to me, I still prefer Reflex over Alive. Uh, but they were both uh, great titles that probably got uh, more more time played on them than than a lot of the other titles that exist. Um, I was curious if if you guys as game developers ever went back and, and played older games that had certain features in them um, that you kind of brought forward or say like how can we can we like put our own twist on something like this? Like uh, I think of like the the career mode with uh mx superfly which you start off as an amateur track you go to loretta's you go to that other weird one that's like somewhere like a quarry um and then you eventually get onto like the the national tracks uh like can you touch on any stuff like that for sure we absolutely played every other game out there possible um constantly would be going back looking for ideas and i can promise you that the core moto group within the company wanted nothing more than a, a rookie to pro type realistic career. And unfortunately it was something that just, it was really tough to get across and get, and get them to let, let, let go. You know, they wanted something different and, and out there. So, but we definitely a hundred percent did. And I mean, a lot of that's what led to another piece that led to my demise with the company is I was playing MXM at the time I'd gotten into it and I literally had it on my computer and I would bring our, our physics guys over and I'd say, look at this. I can do this in a game developed by one dude with no budget compared to what we have. And I want that feel and you can't give it to me, you know? And it, I was using it as an example um, quite often to say the least to try to get that accomplished. But um, yeah, it was just, it was a really misguided ship in, in certain spots. And I, I agree that alive was not nearly as good as reflex. I actually, if it wasn't for the Stewart compound, um, I would have nothing really positive to, to say or take away from alive. Um, unfortunately, my job as a game designer ended up being to create the, the microtransaction model of all of the DLC program and stuff. And I mean, it just, it didn't sit right with me. I'm basically trying to figure out a way to take money out of our fans pockets by giving them less, <laughs> you know, just here, the stuff that you've used, you're used to getting for free. Now you're going to buy it. Um, it it was yeah it was a really tough time for me like I said to, to go through all of that and and ultimately what led to me just saying you know what I I can't do this anymore like I'm I'm over it I'm done I I need to find something different and so one day on the way my way home from the office I I called my boss my now boss and he was my suspension guy my last year racing and we've become friends and he had moved out to race tech about a year prior and so I knew he was in California and he was like the one person I was probably closest with that was in the industry. And I said, do you, if you hear of any jobs, just let me know. I'm, I'm interested. And he's like, well, what do you want to do? And I was like, 
I don't have any experience, but I probably would be pretty decent at, you know, marketing or I could do writer support, you know, that side of things. But I was like, I just need an opportunity. And he gave me Paul Teed's number, the owner of race tech and said, you need to call Paul. He's like, I, I think we're looking for a new marketing guy. Well, what I didn't know is Rob really was one making those decisions at that time. And he just needed Paul to say, okay, this guy doesn't completely suck. And um, I'll support hiring him. And I, so I went in with zero marketing experience other than the cross promo stuff that I did to run the marketing department at race tech. And they had a resume from, I went out for my interview and Paul slaps a resume in front of me on my desk and goes, this guy wants the job too. He wants 10 grand less a year from you. And he's been doing it for 10 years. Why should I hire you? <laughs> and uh, luckily I was, I was very prepared because I'd talked to Rob enough. Um, just again, being excited about it and making sure I wanted to do it. I had a thumb drive with me, which had like a newsletter design, a new website design, like some ad stuff, like all this stuff that I would, I was like, this is what I would create. This is what I would do differently than what you're doing. And I was like, can I pop this in your computer once? And I think right there, Paul saw, oh, wow, he wants this bad enough. He put in all this work without even having the job yet. Like they didn't ask for any of that stuff. Um, maybe he liked my ideas. And, you know, Paul hired me. He said, I understand you've never done this before. I'm paying you to come and learn and make mistakes. Just don't make them twice. <laughs> so I I had no idea what I was doing. I literally sit down and I didn't realize I, I was the whole marketing department. There's there's no one to teach me anything. Um, but we're 11 years later and I'm still there. Um, I just had my review and they were very happy with me. I can tell you that I've made the company a, a good bit of money and I work with a great group of people and we've definitely changed the company considerably in that time, but I guess it's worked out okay. Certainly has, my friend. Uh, yeah, race tech, privateer proven, revalves in a box, everything else in between. Um, and it, yeah, it, it's great to hear that you didn't totally suck, um, and 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 that you were given that vote of confidence. And uh, like that just sort of doubles down the. It's not always what you know; it's who you know. But also uh, how you you present yourself. Uh, there's a lot of people who might might have uh, say they they knew that Rob guy, and they're like, oh, I got this in the bag, and they don't show up near as prepared as you did so uh that really would have been the the linchpin as to giving you the opportunity to uh um at least try at it and, and i i i'm a firm believer in basically any job can be learned um and and then that's what i've literally done with with the podcast is like i learned photoshop i learned podcasting i learned like website hosting and 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 all kinds and and journalism i i learned how i would literally listen to some of the most iconic interviewers in the world and i would i would look at like how they shape questions and and the the lesson that you're not supposed to ask basically two questions at the same time and that is a huge no-no in the sport and i still do it uh but that's because i won't i i i'm not gonna uh fire myself anytime soon it's kind of my job security that i have here over here at big mx radio but um before we dive directly into the race tech thing i need to dial the clocks back even further than we have to this point you mentioned that you raced a national you mentioned that you lined up for one and i don't care if you got dead last uh timed qualifying i don't even think they were doing that at the time but uh like last on the grid like 
I, I need that story. I need to know uh, like the the sort of the lead up to it, what track it was, what day it was, and, and a little bit more detail before that before because you were privateer proven before you were privateer proven. I not only raced a national, um, and it wasn't privateer proven. I was on a bone stock, and I mean bone stock Honda CRF 450. Um, I just didn't know any better, and um, that's okay. There's plenty of guys still like that now. But what was crazy is. I couldn't ever get in. It was in the days of Saturday qualifiers and there was really no like qualification system. Um, as far as to get into the race, it was like, if you sign up for the whole season, you can get in or your best finish at a race, you can get in. But in the racetracks that are close to me that I actually knew were Redbud and Millville. And they're very popular rounds that everybody wants to ride. And a lot of guys wanted to, so I could never get in for one. And so the one I finally got into was the last ever national held at Troy, Ohio. And I'd never been there before. And I get there. It's hotter than all crap. And we're watching Saturday. Um, we roll out in a truck and trailer, <laughs> you know, into the back 40 of the privateer pits. And I go, you know, I'm watching amateur day and kind of looking around the track and, and whatnot. And I don't know if you know much about Troy, Ohio, but it's, it's in the trees and it's real soft, like black dirt and gets real ruddy. Yeah. And so they race amateurs in the morning and then we, we go out for our practice on, on that track. They don't prep it. Um, the only thing they did was they opened up, there was two pro sections that they opened up that weren't for the amateurs. And so I hit the track in very first lap of practice, I'm just kind of cruising around, checking it out. And there was like a, you know, 40 foot double before the finish, something small. And I jump it and I go to lean over like the front of the bike to charge down the straightaway after it. And there's ruts on the landing and I caught my toe on a rut and it ripped my foot straight down on the foot peg first lap of practice. And I tore all the tendons in my ankle and I let it roll two corners in the mechanics area. And I'm like, crap, sit there. The pain kind of goes away a little bit. Um, and I go like roll one more lap of practice and then and go back to the truck and then go back and I'm like, crap, this sucks. You know, um, I don't want to take my boot off when I get back. So I know it's going to swell up and I made the decision. I was going to go out for the second practice, but I couldn't start my bike because it's my right foot and I couldn't kick it. So I literally have my brother's mechanic for me, start my bike on the line and I go out for the next practice and just jump everything first lap and just ride pretty decently actually. Um, but I'm super obviously timid in all my right hand corners. Um, and then a cement start. So it was Saturday qualifiers after that. And I lined up for the heat race. And I remember I lined up by Roderick Tain and he was on a like motor world Suzuki. Mm-hmm. And um, I can't remember. What year is this, by the way? What's that? Uh, what year is it, by the way? Four or five. Okay. I had a license in four and five. I don't remember which. I think 2004 is when I actually raced it. Okay. Because I don't think I did one in 2005. I'm not positive on that. Um, But it was somebody else pretty legit. And. I really didn't start on cement ever, but it was also a really long start. And I was on a 450 and I come out on my day qualifier on Saturday and I start like fourth. I'm like, come around the second quarter. I'm like, Oh crap. Um, you know, I've only ridden like four laps, like hard on the track and I'm just pinning it. And there's just roost and people everywhere. It's just chaos. Um, my heart rate spiked and, and I was actually riding really, really well. I think I was in, I think they took 16 and I was like 12th on the, going on the last lap when I went by the mechanics area and coming out of one of the pro sections, there was a double that you had to time to land, get into the inside of a corner, but it was pretty big. And 
I mistimed it just a little bit and came up short. And at that point, my foot that was already really sore was really, really, really sore. And I couldn't even put it back on the peg and rolled around the rest of the lap and, and failed to qualify. And then like that, it was done at that point. There was no lining up for an LCQ or anything. Like I was, I was done, went over and my very first national, I, I got to visit the then asterisk medical tent <laughs> and they did x-rays and stuff and gave me some crutches and um yeah unfortunately uh it it wasn't a very big success story i'm glad that i did it um i was always more of an indoor guy than an outdoor guy so maybe troy was a perfect track for me to do it at um it actually really liked that track i thought it was a ton of fun i just wish i could have walked and <laughs> and started my bike and stuff but hey at least we got there you know and at least we did it once i never raced a supercross i wish i would have tried it but i was always a little scared I practiced on a supercross track a ton, um, but I liked arena cross because I could I could learn that small track really fast. I was really good at whoops. I could get through a rhythm fast, but I didn't like to do the big lines. And supercross intimidated me because of having to learn so much track. I just I put it on a standard that was maybe higher than it really was. But I wish I would have done one just to check that box off as well and said, "Hey, I I did it. I tried it." Um, at the end of the day, I don't, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. It doesn't change who I am or, or what I've done. Um, but it would have been cool to have to check that box once. Yeah. Certainly would have been, uh, and, and, and what could have been if you would have made it into the main events, uh, or, uh, the Sunday races, uh, perhaps Ricky Carmichael doesn't go perfect in 2005 or four. Um, yeah. Hang on. Uh, <laughs> I believe I was like six seconds slower than Ricky Carmichael a lap. Like, okay that's actually I, that's reasonably close because nowadays yeah. guys at the back of the pack or guys that don't qualify are like 10 plus seconds uh adrift so yeah and i always was like when i went into those situations i didn't take myself too seriously at all um i just didn't want to be embarrassing and i wanted to be in the mix and i was faster than like 20 guys so i was like okay cool i, I don't suck completely um, my goal for the whole thing wasn't to make the motos. My goal was to make the Sunday show. Like I was pretty realistic with what expectations I had and, and where I was at when in life. So, um, yeah, I, I accomplished that part at least. So do we, do we want to dive straight into Storm Lake Honda arena cross rounds or just go f- start focusing on uh, race tech here? I mean, we can talk about the arena cross stuff. I, I did okay. You know, I had a lot of fun. I was a junior in high school racing the arena cross series. Like that was awesome. It was a super sick experience. Um, there was, there was times that I was battling with and beating guys that were like way better than me. I thought, but I was, I was really pretty good at arena cross. Like um, I got a race with Ryan Sipes in one of his like last, I guess, races before he went pro and he whole shot. I started second, but again, I was really good in the whoops because I was a big dude and I want a four fifty, and I blew by him in the whoops. And it was like, yeah, this is sick. And then he stuffed me two corners later, and I about landed on him on the catapult because he blocked me like right before it. And I was like, oh my god, I just about killed this dude. Like I have no business battling with him. <laughs> so uh, that was pretty funny. But I can always say I passed him that one time. There you go. Uh, like my only Ryan Sipe story is that we uh, had to share a bed at a hotel room in uh, in Colorado, like 2018. That's random. Yeah. Well, he was staying with James Hansen, and then James was my uh, my road 
uh friend where we would uh go out to go out to eat and, and drink and everything else like that so and and uh for that particular weekend uh yeah sipes had to to tag along with us and there's only two beds so james got the bed to himself and it was me and sipes don't like and all i can say about that is ryan sipes liked to steal the covers um but let's get into some privateer proven uh discussion uh race tech sponsor of the big mx radio podcast new for 2023 uh and very much thanks to the the marketing guy over there uh for for having faith in us um but a brand that has steadily over the years developed a, a cult-like following because it just plain works whether it's the uh, building engines or uh suspension tuning or just having your stuff sus- having your stuff serviced at all race tech uh has really become sort of a gold standard um on a on a component side of things as well as uh, as a service side of things um because a lot of people think about the gold valves they've been around for a very long period of time and they think that oh uh, they came up with the gold valves uh years ago and they've sort of been uh using those for a long period of time but a lot of people would be surprised to find out gold valves themselves have evolved over the years and there's been thousands of renditions of them uh over the years and be- becoming something that's uh that's become even more refined over those uh the time that 12 feet has been uh working with the company absolutely i mean we touched on it a little earlier the reason i'm at race tech is is rob brown who's our head of r d and the reason i i can sell race tech and tell my friends to go there and the reason i went there is i believe in rob I've experienced, I've run a lot of different suspensions under the sun. And I just told you I raced a national on stock stuff. The reason being is I hadn't really spent time with Rob yet. And so I'd pretty much given up on like, I was like, this stuff most of the time isn't any better than stock. And then I met Rob and he completely transformed my motorcycle. I always thought suspension was just bumps and jumps and whoops. But what I found was an actual really properly set up motorcycle will corner like a mother it goes where you want it to go it's predictable it hooks up um it's very planted feel great rider feedback you know that side of things and robin went like i said about a year before me and he completely changed everything about race tech from the design of the valve to the valving to the fluid that we used in our mixture of our fluids literally from the ground up race tech was a completely different product and it definitely went through a phase where race tech wasn't the best in the in the world. It really it wasn't. And um, I had to fight that a little bit when I started. Um, there was a really bad reputation and it was tough for me to give the product away. And that was what Rob and Paul wanted me to do when I started was get as many people on it as possible. Like it's OK to give product away because we have to rebuild this brand and show people that what race tech is now is not what it was. And since that's happened. Um, Rob has really transformed the company along with, you know, Paul's support and whatnot to where it is an R&D house constantly. The valve, it constantly updates. You don't get a new part number and we don't launch, oh, it's a shiny new valve because we don't wait. We just put it right into production and and roll it straight through. Um, There's no waiting. Like we always want to be leading and you would be amazed at how many of the bikes out there that you see on the podiums on Saturday nights that Rob has had influence on their setting. And, you know, he has very good relationships with all the best tuners in the industry and they all have respect for each other. And I didn't realize how much that they all talk, you know, it's, it's not a bunch of secrets, at least um, from our standpoint. And that's something that Rob and Paul both are, are really good about 
and so then they, they get that reciprocated as well is you know and also a lot of them came through race tech at one point you know they before they were where they are now they worked at race tech or were taught race tech from paul at some point so um it's neat but and that's where privateer proven really came from was they wanted me to get the product on everybody's bike you know as many people as we could well i had all these relationships from my video game days of all the privateers and so they wanted to support as much as anything so robin Wyatt or and it wasn't Wyatt at the time um whoever's track side guys were they were at the test tracks at Motoland or not Motoland um I'm drawing a blank it's a milestone like milestone yeah they were there two to three times a week oh they were there all the time I've the times I went down there uh in 2010 2011 2012 2014 uh I probably logged at least 10 15 days at uh at milestone and race tech was there every time absolutely so you know we were giving them support that no one else was going to give them you know and when i first started rob asked me he said put together a budget for a 250 west supercross team and i did and i found even sponsorship to cover all of the expense you know it was verbal commitments and I took it to him and I was like, oh yeah, dude, we're going racing with a racing. This is going to be sick. Um, Rob obviously wanted me to be super involved. And, and Paul goes, yeah, we're not doing it. And I was like, what, what are you talking about? I was like, it's not even going to cost us anything. We're going to get all this marketing and we're going to be like starting to build what pro circuit and factory connection both have done. Like they have these sick race teams. And he's like, I was like, I have it sold already. He's like, what happens when they don't pay their bill? Then I have to. And he's like, I can afford to, but I don't want to, <laughs> you know, I'm like, get my tail between my legs a little bit. And I'm bummed. And I'm like, well, what can we do differently? And then I was like, what if we do basically what fly racing has done? And you just outfit everybody else. If you don't have the top guys and you just do everybody else. And so we, I start making phone calls, texts and, at the time, it was still difficult to get people to believe in it for year one. Year two, it started getting better. And honestly, I don't hear it much anymore because it's a whole new generation that's now experienced the good race tech product. That is, um, it's world-class stuff. It it honestly is competitive at the highest levels. The product is not holding you back anymore. Like that's 100% not a problem. Um, I mean, we've we put Vince Freezy on a Supercross podium at one point, like on production stuff. Like that wasn't even a kit stuff. Like we worked with Malcolm Stewart for one day and he went in one Montreal, you know, there was literally I was tried there. stuff one test day and he won and he liked this stuff. Like he was coming off of a factory program and, and was happy with it. You know, I, I like to tell the story of Matt Bashelia when he went to uh Hanny's team and he was testing factory stuff kit stuff all the way till the wednesday before a1 and was struggling and uh robbie who actually used to be vince's mechanic was working for the team and said you should go talk to race tech and it was the first year of the bfrc shock and everybody said that thing can't work for supercross that thing it can't work rob's like just bring me your production stuff keep your kit stuff so that if you don't like it you have that stuff to go racing on we'll do your production stuff and he went out to the Suzuki track and was absolutely ripping. He was actually going faster than Pike, which was pretty gnarly because Bashelia was not at that level at that time. And 
the Showa guys were there and the Suzuki engineers were there because it was before A1. And they were blown away that we had the shock working in Supercross. And Matt came off and he would obviously ridden for Geico and been on some really, really good stuff. He's like, this is the best stuff I've ever ridden. And that was really cool to me to see um, guys like that that have been on the highest level stuff coming and saying, you know, this stuff's really, really, really good. Um, it just reassures me that we're doing something correct and right. And then they were not limited by components. I mean, I don't know if you've heard the story about how terrible WP4CS forks are. Um, I have them on my bike. So we, uh, not taking a factory guy, but we took Steven Mages and put him in a Supercross main event on WP4CS forks. So I would like that setup, please. Um, they're, they're still a terrible component. We make them better. But the fact is, is we're not limited so much by the component because Rob knows how suspension works. Paul knows how suspension works. And they will develop something the best that they can with the component that you have. Could you put a set of cone valve forks on there and have something much better? Absolutely, you still can. You know, I'm not claiming that a that WP4CS setup is better than a set of cone valve stuff or factory stuff. But the fact is, it was good enough to put a privateer in a Supercross main event when most other people were saying, just throw them in the trash. Fair enough. Well, honestly, I, I have always struggled with that fork. Uh, I do not trust my front wheel. I also don't trust myself at the, at the controls. Um, but uh, yeah, that, that bike is honestly like what, what's the worst part about that fork to me uh, or just the way that that the 2016 uh, KTM 252 stroke feels to me is that every time that I jump on my 2005 KX252 stroke, which is notoriously one of the most ill-handling like KX250s that was ever produced, um, I feel more at home on that bike and more uh, capable and and just more like I just I feel better on that bike. And yeah, it just like ah, like it bugs me so much that uh, a bike that is 11 years older uh, and probably has more time on that fork than I do on the, the, the KTM. Um, that four CS fork is, uh, it needs race tech. Uh, and I'm glad that, uh, we've, we've, we've made bridge this, uh, this, this, this relationship. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because if I look at it from a business standpoint, I actually miss four CS forks and people look at it like, why would you miss four CX forks? They suck. The word we used to use for them are they were consistently inconsistent. Um, just very, very unpredictable. But what a lot of people don't realize is what's different about Race Tech than any other suspension company out there pretty much is what we do through our shop, we look at it as marketing and R&D. That's not actually our business where we make our money. Our money that we make is based on selling setups and products and such to all the other suspension tuners out there. Well, the only way you can actually make a WP4CS fork work is you convert it to an open chamber fork and get rid of their four chamber design. And then we add like compression bases and there's a bunch of parts and pieces that even tuners that aren't using gold valves buy from us. And people that you would think are our quote competitors will purchase from us in the warehouse in the back of the shop is actually what the business is all about with race tech. And that's why we don't have to have secrets. We can give them away. We can teach people to become quote our competition and be tuners because we have products and tools and settings and all of that side of things. Um, to provide for them. So the WP4CS fork was actually amazing for business because they were so bad and we really were the ones that figured out how to make the thing work. 
and it took a lot of parts and components to make it work. So that meant we had a lot of stuff to sell. And when you have a lot of stuff to sell, then it's pretty good for the business. There you go. Uh, one of the questions I was going to ask you is, uh, say, I, I, I've clearly, I need my suspension done uh, by, by Race Tech, and we look to uh, coordinate that before the season starts for me in, in early, early May. Uh, but what are some of the questions that customers should be asking their uh, Race Tech authorized dealer uh, when it comes to setting up their bike or, or, or getting some sort of service done? Um, they should probably be asking them what they recommend and listening to that. Um, if you're if you're going to somebody to do your suspension, you should have already done your research and known that, well, this guy knows what he's doing. So don't, one of the questions I get asked a lot that makes me just smack my forehead is, um, if you see it on the amateur national side a lot is, well, will you go test with me? And I, I look at him and I go, so you want me to suck at my job? They're like, huh? And I go, well, if you're asking me for testing already, that means you expect it to suck and it need to be better. I was like, I thought you were paying me to make your stuff good so that hopefully we don't have to test. You know, we test when we have to test to make it better, but um, that one always drives me absolutely nuts. But if it's like, take it to somebody that you actually trust and and you start there. I mean, you can log on to racetech.com and find your local service center. If they're a service center, it means that they've went through the course with Racetech and know how to install suspension. It also means that they have over a million dollars in R&D at their disposal because that's what the Racetech R&D budget is annually. And there's no secrets. When it comes to our Racetech centers, they have access to the same exact settings and products that you can get in California. And then they can be at the local track so they can set your sag. They can make sure that your front wheels actually put on properly and your forks are parallel. Because let me tell you, I hear a lot of people say my suspension sucks and that's the problem. It's not that the suspension has anything wrong with it. It's the fact they didn't put their front wheel on properly and the forks are bound. So it's sticking and harsh. It's so common. I mean, we see it in Supercross all the time. Wyatt walks around in the morning and just loosens everyone's axle, just make sure their forks are parallel because they're always switching tires and wheels, you know, at every round. And triple clamps are <laughs> cross-threaded and tight. You know, and they don't have the most experienced mechanics a lot of times. You know, it's it's my buddy flew out and he's helping me. So you can solve a lot of problems by by just doing that and then actually setting your sag and, and that. And the other thing is is be honest. The worst thing you can do is not be truthful um, with your weight and speed is very important to get the right setup. And, you know, that's where you can communicate the most with your tuner is if they haven't seen you ride, make sure that you both are on the same page of the skill level that you actually are for the setting that you have. And I mean, I could tell you there's, there's a couple of, of super cross riders that they have the weight that they tell us, which is their very feminine weight. And then there's their real weight. And let me tell you that this part is the guys can tell right away when they go to set sag, whether you told them the truth on your weight or not, because they have a formula that sets that with preload and spring rate calculated for rider weight. So if you didn't tell them the right weight and you're not getting sagged, well, then it means you lied about your weight or you were just wrong. So um, there's a reason that all of our trucks that go to the track have a scale in them. So it's, it's very common. I've, I've gone out with guys and it's, come here, stand on the scale. Ah, that's why. <laughs> so um, there's actually, a, there's one currently racing right now that he was about 30 pounds estimate of where he actually was versus uh, 
what he was. And when he went to get his first bike, his first setup, he's like, man, this thing's real low in the back. And they were set inside. Luckily, the bike was at the shop. And they're like, yeah, hang on a minute. <laughs> and brought the scale over 30 um, pounds I, I don't think i've ever uh been off by 30 pounds i'm gonna be a little bit realistic with myself um honestly it was the same thing when i used to uh set i used to set up skis for people like like the the din settings on your ski bindings are based on your your ability and your weight is that if you're if you're really heavy but you're uh a bad skier you still need a, a stiffer spring rate on the, the the din settings than you are set or if you're say like a really light skier but you're really really good uh you'd also need a really stiff spring rate because you're going to put that much torsion on uh the 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 bindings themselves and you'd have people like lie about uh their weight or or their ability it was always their ability They're like oh yeah I, I ski like blacks all the time and then they end up breaking their femur because their ski was didn't what wasn't supposed to come off or was supposed to come off and it didn't um but yeah i totally get you on that yeah i mean it's only just doing yourself a favor by giving them the most proper information and and the fact is is when we build a setup we build it at the top end of your skill level and what i mean by that is Rob has a theory of you get in trouble. That's when your suspension is supposed to save you. And when you get in trouble is usually when you're pushing the limits and riding at the high end of, of your skill level. So the goal is to gradually work you up to being a better rider and going to that next skill level up, but you won't have enough comfort to even get to that level. If you don't actually start in the right spot. Fair enough. And yeah, that's, that's, that's totally fair. And sometimes people uh, really like riders, they don't truly understand what their suspension is giving them as far as feedback. Like um, I, I thought for the longest time that um, when my, my bike was like always wanting to sort of climb out of ruts that I like, Oh, like it's too soft. It's too soft. It's too soft. I'm like, no, it's probably too stiff because the front wheel isn't tracking. It's wanting, it's pushing through and wanting to like climb out of ruts. Um, and yeah, like, uh, I've worked with some guys in the past and we have, uh, uh, Chris, uh, I believe it's Chris Elliott who doesn't live too far from here, who is a unauthorized race tech dealer. And that's who I'm going to be working with, uh, going forward to, uh, to, to set my bike up so that I can uh, try and back up my, uh, plus 25 B championship here in 2023. Yeah, absolutely. It's, there's like so, so many things that are common and there's a lot of misinformation out there in the the worst thing for me to hear is, well, I read on the forums about this. And it's like, okay, well, you're talking to a suspension professional. Do you want to take the 10-year-old on the forum? Or do you want the suspension professional's opinion? Like, you can take it or leave it. But, I mean, when it goes to making changes, you listen to them. I mean, there's a lot of common theories out there that are just completely wrong. You know, it's, you could make, Paul always jokes about, he's like, you can make a living on just going and speeding people's rebound up because as soon as their back end kicks the first thing they do is go crank the rebound in because they don't understand how it works and that most likely they're making the problem worse because if you the the way that i explain it to people is take your bike off the stand in your garage push down as absolute hard as you can on your shock and let go does your back wheel come off the ground that is the absolute hardest that that shot could ever rebound is that and it's not kicking the back end off the ground. So how are you telling me that that's kicking your back wheel up in the air? It is not actually your rebound causing your bike to kick. Um, there's there's another issue there. Um, another one is people with their fork height, and well, I want it to turn better, and so they they have they've dropped their forks and their clamps so that they're you know lowering the front end per se. 
and I say, oh, it turns so much better. No, actually, your bars turn easier in your hands, but you just gave up front wheel traction and your bike actually doesn't turn as well. Um, so that's something that's that's also super common, but it's stuff like that. So instead of guessing or listening to the guy on the forum, it's I would recommend talking to an actual suspension professional and letting them help you and steer you through through what's going on. And that's where a lot of the race tech center thing came comes into play is it's really tough for race tech to have, you know, 10,000 customers and help all of them. But when I have a race tech center, they have a hundred customers or so, you know, you know, whatever that number is, a much smaller number, and they can provide much better support and be there for you to answer all the questions like that. Fair enough. Like they, they might ask us something like, how often should I have my suspension service, let alone having it completely revalved? Of course, everyone think, uh, thinks that they're a, a factory superstar. They need a complete revalve uh, and they also need testing. Everyone wants to be a, like that, feel like they're, they're Ricky Carmichael and have someone go out there uh, with a flathead screwdriver and, and, and twist back and forth. And they're going to, they're going to magically drop lap times. Um, but uh, that, that is one question I had for you is like, say, even for myself, Mr. Weekend Warrior, uh, I practice maybe once twice a week and I race on weekends uh how frequently do you think that uh I'm getting my stuff torn apart and uh, at least freshened up um we're 20 to 30 hours is what we recommend on on a rebuild and really it's for two reasons one your damping characteristics start to change as fluid breaks down and so your your stuff's not as consistent at that point it's not actually providing the damping that's designed for and then also it is to keep your parts from getting additional wear and tear which starts to get really expensive when you start to blow through coatings and stuff like that because fluids worn and you know you're getting more friction and and whatnot you're not only not getting the performance but then you start to get into really expensive um, repairs and that side of things that you can avoid so yeah we're 20 to 30 hours is what we recommend and you know that's that's for really you know people say oh well i'm only this level rider your suspension's still moving like that's the thing is no matter what level router you are it's still moving and i understand like not everyone wants to get a revalve but so i always tell people at least get it in proper working order and then do yourself a favor and, and spring rates are super super important and they'll at least set the balance of the bike properly and so do that like you don't yes a revalve will help everybody because it's a personalized setup for you and from an OEM standpoint, you never get that exact personalized setup for you. So a proper revalve should be better, but at least do your favor yourself a favor and get the geometry of the bike set up right so you can get sag properly and the things at least riding decent and fresh and not causing additional damage. But um yeah, people overlook suspension very, 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 very often. Oh heck yeah. When it comes to um like upgrading my motorcycle uh i will go i will dump money into suspension long before i look into uh any engine mod or, or anything quite like that but that's also something that race tech does as well you guys do race tech engines and uh um like you guys do the engines for team solitaire and those guys have been getting good starts all year yeah that program is is really awesome and i tell people all the time and i talk about rob and how great he is at suspension well what a lot of people maybe don't know is he's actually better at engines. Um, he became a suspension guy because his engine customers wanted him to be one. Um, and when he moved to, to California to go to race tech, he sold off all of his engine equipment that he had. And it happened to be um, probably four or five years later, the guy that had bought it all 
decided he was going to get out of the industry. And so all the equipment was going up for sale and it was going up for sale at about pennies on the dollar. And Rob called Paul and was like, Hey, what do you think about starting an engine department? And Paul's, you know, he told him about the equipment and, and Paul said, well, if anything, it's a good investment because I can turn around and resell the equipment later if I want to and, and make money. And they bought it. And then Rob's like, I don't want to run it at all. Like, he's like, I, we need to find somebody. And just like we were talking about earlier with finding the right person and then teaching them, the stuff sat for nearly two years until Andrew, who now runs our engine department, came along and became available and, and he was the guy. And so then he came in and he had some experience, but he then learned everything that, that he could from Rob and Rob taught him everything. And then Rob took him to the people that taught him engines, which are um, some of the best induction people in the world. In fact, uh, Darren Morgan, I believe is his name is right now known as the absolute best induction person in the world. Um, and does a lot of NHRA stuff. And that is who previously had taught Robin. He actually sent Andrew to, to spend some time with him and learn from him. And just like suspension, we're not just, we're not people that are going out there and just throwing a bunch of stuff at it, grinding away and then throwing it on the dyno and throwing it on the track and saying, Oh, did it make power? Everything is, it's a mathematic formula and it's a scientific approach to it. So then it's repeatable and can be applied across all models and that side of things. I mean, Andrew spends a ridiculous amount of time on the flow bench and developing and developing and developing. And I mean, I would challenge anyone in our industry against Andrew right now for how smart he is and what he knows. He is, he is incredible and it, it's an interesting department because we don't build engines in-house. We we are a machine shop that supplies engine services to engine builders everywhere um, or just yourself, you know, and we'll tell you what we found. Like this is, this is the combination to create power for that bike and you assemble it how you want to. <laughs> um, if you listen, you can have a really, really, really good running motorcycle. Um, I've, I know plenty of people that are, that are extremely happy with them. It's gotten to the point now where some of the most renowned engine builders in the in the industry, guys that have a long history of making a ton of horsepower, are utilizing our engine services department. They don't they don't tell you that it's been there. They don't put our logo on their stuff, and I'm not allowed to tell you about it more than more than that. I can't mention names. And there's, I mean, there's factory teams and OEMs doing the same exact thing, and that's just growing. I mean, this is. The department is absolutely insanely busy. The amount of equipment and dollars and equipment that we've been able to, to get is awesome. And here's the thing. Not every single builder can afford to have all of that stuff. But because we service so many builders, we are a lot, we are able to. Plus, obviously, the suspension side of things, we had a little bit of a bankroll. So it's it's not just the people. It's also the, the proper equipment. And so it's, it's really neat. It's a really cool department. Um, you can gain a lot from any, we know we do ECU stuff all the time and you can get a great flowing head. I mean, I can tell you this much, the bikes that the AJE guys are on getting great starts um, that Her Mitchell Harrison absolutely is raving about his motorcycle, how fast it is right now, which is awesome. That Jerry Robin pulled whole shots at nationals on as a privateer. That engine package is a head, a piston, an ECU and race gas a retail cost on that engine is somewhere under $3,000, probably about 2,200, 
$2,300. I'm doing math off the top of my head. I don't do a lot of pricing, but comparatively to, I mean, I hear from, I hear engine packages from 10 to $20,000 out there all the time and that have five hour rebuild periods. That engine also will run the entire Supercross season without having to be opened back up. And the reason that's for big. that is, that's important, you know, and the reason for that is, is everything again is it's not just, Hey, we're testing and tuning and trying this. We do do that. We do, you know, a lot of that's mapping, especially, but it's because we're creating an efficient head to start with and putting the power where it's supposed to be. And not just, you know, a lot of our industry isn't built on technology. It's built on trial and error. And well, he's been around a long time and, you know, he was a mechanic for 18 years working on bikes. So he must know what he's doing. Well, he might know how to put stuff together, but there's more to it than that side of things. So, um, you know, we're able to make a lot of power for, for a little, and, and I'm also not here claiming that it's a star Yamaha because here's the thing. They're not just creating a good engine. They're dissecting every single piece of an engine and a motorcycle to maximize power and handling and that side of things. You know, we are in the business of building a great head, providing parts that are needed for reliability and that side of things. But it's not, uh, you know, we're not necessarily saying, oh, we, you know, do this to your airbox and and that side of things. Like if we come across it, we will let you know about it and tell you about it. But that's not stuff that we're spending hours and hours and hours upon developing. That's not that's not our business. We trying to we want to stay in our lane a little bit, I guess you could say. Fair enough. Well, I do appreciate the info, and that's that's pretty eye opening um, to see um, Race Tech being able to uh, to compete with the big dogs and, and doing so uh, in a budget conscious fashion. Uh, I know you're super proud of uh, of, of your Race Tech athletes that that uh, show out at the 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 top at the peak of the sport uh i think of probably the the most demanding side of things would definitely be uh in my own eyes would be racing outdoor nationals in the states um like a lot of people obviously supercross is a huge piece uh of, of as far as us watching but those who actually uh purchase suspension i would say the majority of them race outdoors and uh and then they would be looking for an outdoor setting um give me an example of somebody who um really takes their race tech suspension at the pro level and uh and and takes it to the highest height it can well when it comes to outdoors um a lot of our i guess you would say premier athletes since we're working with privateers a lot of them don't ride the nationals or they don't ride all of them because as a business decision it's it's really a terrible idea for most of them um so we actually focus a lot of our support on the outdoor side on your top local racers and we want the guy winning at the local track that he'll also show up and race his local you know couple nationals or so that are in his area a lot of times but we don't necessarily overlook the guy that is out at chicken lakes raceway every saturday or sunday winning the local a class you know i think a lot of times those guys get overlooked and a lot of times they're making more money than the privateer trying to chase the nationals um as far as the guy that that really captures the flag and and believes in the product and takes it to highest levels i mean it'd be pretty hard to look further than chris blows who i mean he's been a long time loyal race tech guy um he's run He's run race tech inside of a lot of different sets of suspension that maybe didn't have our stickers on it even, um, just as a, a big believer in the product. And he believed in it so much that he made it his business after racing until, well, he got the top secret phone call and 
decided to go back racing, which um, I'm super happy about the fact that our relationship's so good that it was one of the first phone calls that he made was to tell Rob how pumped he was that he finally got his opportunity on a factory bike. And he was coming yeah. on the couch for it. And I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge believer in, in Chris and as a person and as a human being, I think he's a great racer and I'm stoked that he at least gets the opportunity. Cause one of the things he's always told me was, I just want to know what it's like. I want to feel a factory bike at some point, just so I know, you know, he's like, I know my stuff's always been really good, but how much better actually is it? You know, what have I been racing against my whole career? So um, I'm super excited to hear more about that as he gets going and racing on the East coast. And I mean, it's going to hurt his suspension business a little bit, which is a, is a bummer. Um, he had a really, really good first, you know, first year of uh, becoming a race tech center impressive actually but i guess i shouldn't be that impressed because he's one of those guys that's driven and motivated has a great local following and that side of things but i don't know i'm just i'm wondering you know is he riding for pro circuit cowie on the weekends training and testing and everything and still going in the shop at night and building suspension or not i'm not sure how that's all going to work out for him yeah I, that was actually something that was a shower thought that i had uh, either yesterday or the day after or the day before of just like how is chris blos managing that like does he have some minions back home um that are that are trained to be able to to handle some of his work or is he having to say hey uh gotta put you on hold because like up here it'd be a little bit different if you're a race tech uh like you're probably doing well you probably do some snowmobile stuff and like maybe some snow bike stuff, but for right now, uh, it's not all that busy. Uh, although I'm sure about two weeks prior to the season starting, uh, there's about 250 people that say they need their stuff done. Um, and, and that's the same woes that, uh, graphic company <laughs> owners feel, uh, when the, the race is this weekend and you get a call on Thursday about they want, uh, they want a full custom kit. Um, but I, I just think that it's so awesome to see Chris Blos, a journeyman in this, a journeyman in the sport, a guy who has ridden for so many different manufacturers, so many different teams, uh, been loyal to so many different um, companies over the year and uh, over the years, and he's just he's such a great guy. Someone you can like, just your average fan can really connect with and and uh, cheer for. Uh, I've had him on the show before, and uh, I think after a couple of races out east, I'm gonna have to have him on again. Uh, just do a, a little bit of a deep dive into not only his career, but uh, how that pro circuit Kawasaki uh, compares to a, a bike that he'd build and uh, and spring for himself. Yeah, it's definitely um, a, a really neat story. So um, hopefully he's just telling everybody to either wait or ship your stuff off to uh, to race Tech's headquarters for a little while so that he can make the most of this opportunity and not focus on running a business while trying to also be a factory level racer. So I mean, I hope that's what he's doing, but I haven't actually asked him yet. It'll be interesting to see what he's actually doing. We'll get to the bottom of that soon. You and I, uh, in just over 12 hours, are going to do this again. 14 hours from now, we're going to be YouTube live with the great Denny Stevenson. We were supposed to be uh, doing this with him tonight, but uh, scheduling and Denny uh, are sometimes hit or miss. Uh, and I think that's something that we will, uh, you you know, I'm learning. Um, but uh, this is damn near two hours, uh, Chris. This was so much fun to sort of like... Um, like literally like a lazy river just meandering through your history within the sport. And honestly, I think we just kind of scratched the surface. And uh, that's one of the real, real reasons why um, I, I wanted to have you on. And uh, this will be a kind of a continual thing where we sort of jump on and talk about some stuff. But I hope that people were uh, educated, informed and entertained by uh, your story with the sport because it's a good one and a great one. 
Well, it's pretty crazy to think that people would uh, be interested and care about it, but um, I'm always excited to talk about dirt bikes at, at any time. And I really want to encourage anyone that, that is interested in race tech or has questions about it and stuff. Like I'm just a normal super fan, like anyone else, like, don't be afraid to reach out. Um, you can follow me on any of my socials at checkers four, four, eight. My email is Chris at racetech.com. And I have no problem trying to help people out, answer questions, steer you in the right direction and, and really provide, you know, that personalized support because that's what the moto industry is all about for me. You know, I go tracks out at Loretta's and it brings back memories. Um, speaking of pro circuit, I was a pro circuit kid as um, on exhaust as a, as a kid growing up. And I go over there at Loretta's and they would give me hats and shirts and, you know, like, come by and we'll check your sag. And they just treated me like I was really awesome, even though I was going to go get 30th place, you know? Um, so I try to, I try to take that and provide that same experience for people as much as I possibly can. And if we're talking about dirt bikes, it's awesome for me. And like, you know, it's, it's my job, but if you haven't gathered through this whole thing, most of it really doesn't feel like work. I really enjoy what I do and enjoying dealing and helping people is what makes it so fun for me. So definitely feel free to reach out. Thanks for the time, Brad. Remember mention big MX radio. If you are going to call or email in an order for race tech um, and you'll get a nice little discount there also lets people know that you're hearing about race tech from big MX radio. So that maybe I keep Brad around, I guess for next year. Fair enough. Well, yeah, you're preaching to the choir, my friend. I believe this is the sixth podcast that I've been on uh, this week and uh, we're doing one more tomorrow. Uh, so yeah, like it, it, it hasn't felt like work at all this week and nor has it for the nine years prior to this. So uh, we'll keep it rolling. Really appreciate you, you coming on, making the time and uh, we'll definitely chat again soon. Absolutely. And there you have it, my podcast with Checkers, Chris Riesenberg from Racetech. Racetech Gold Valves, revalve in a box. Better plushness, increased bottoming resistance, and better traction. And all that means is you're going to have faster lap times when you hit the track on practice day or when you line up for a race. Thanks again for Checkers for checking in on this podcast. Really appreciate you guys taking the time to listen to it. And I appreciate him for taking the time to come on the podcast and give you guys a little bit of a peek behind the curtain uh, on him as well as race tech in general. Looking to line him up for another podcast in uh, the near future. Obviously, him and I and Denny Stevenson do our Thursday show uh, previewing the races. Uh, that's become a regular occurrence. Really excited about that and looking forward to doing a lot more of those. But you know what? There's a lot more stories when it comes to Chris Riesenberg. So unfortunately for you guys, we're going to have to dig a little bit deeper and talk about some of those tracks that he designed and uh, just like go a little bit deeper with the guy who's got so many stories about a totally iconic time within the sport. Anyway, guys, please support the sponsors. Check out the link tree on my Instagram as well as Twitter. And uh, even if you have me on TikTok, uh, the link tree is there. And you can save money with my sponsors, including Racetech, uh, Luxon MX, Guts Racing, Phoenix Handlebars, WSA, and uh, and many others like uh, um, Heart, Heartbeat Hot Sauce. And uh, yeah, I already mentioned Luxon MX. You can save 10% with Luxon MX. Honestly, most of their stuff, their ticket items are around $1,000. And uh, saving 10% is literally Big MX Radio just sliding you 100 bucks to go towards your uh, your treble clamps. Or uh, maybe you're looking for uh, some pull rods for your linkage and stuff like that. They have an, an, an adjustable linkage system, which is pretty cool. So go check it out. LuxonMX.com. 
All right, guys, have yourselves a great rest of your day. Hopefully you're you're loving these podcasts that I keep doing. And uh, yeah, looking forward to uh, this weekend. Tampa Supercross, where I am uh, having the boys over. uh, James Dahlman, Kieran Kieran McCullough, and whoever else ends up, uh, all my degenerate friends that end up showing up to the the apartment are going to watch the races. And we'll be back next week to recap more of it. Take care.